is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and truly dreadful puns. I'm Hannah Abrams, and tonight we talk about dialysis for the internist with our guest, Dr. Joel Toff. Dr. Toff is the cash-like chief of nephrology, although he's better known as his much cooler and more intelligent online alter ego, at kidney underscore boy. He's a clinical nephrologist at St. John's Ascension in Detroit, the co-creator of Neff Journal Club, Neff Madness, and the Freely Filtered Podcast, and he's a recipient of the Robert Nairns Award from the ASN. My co-hosts for this episode are Matt Watto and Paul Williams, and we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Toff, who teaches us about how to counsel patients who are approaching dialysis, what we should and shouldn't do when we're co-managing a patient on dialysis, and his approach to med management for these patients. So without further ado, let's get to it. Joel, thank you for coming back. Let's let's remind people your one-liner. If they don't know you by now, then shame on them, but just, just give them a one-liner. I'm a 50-year-old white male. I was born and raised in Detroit. I'm a clinical nephrologist that enjoys using social media and the internet to do teaching. People may not know me by my name, Joel Toff, but people usually know me by my much more exciting alter ego, Kidney Boy. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's let's jump right into a pick of the week. Joel, did you have anything you wanted to recommend? So uh, there's a conference called uh, KidneyCon. It's in um, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And I, if you've ever been to a big national meeting, they're super exciting. But this is kind of the opposite of it. Right? <laughs> a big No, a big national meeting is exciting because there's a lot of people and there's a lot of energy and there's new data being released. And KidneyCon's like, let's miniaturize that. And let's really focus on education. And so it's a very educational focused, uh, really intense uh, social media oriented uh, nephrology conference. It's just uh, three days. They've got a, a CRT school on Thursday. Thursday night, there's a, um, there's a cooking class where they're bringing in uh, the cooking doc who's on Twitter. He's a nephrologist that teaches people how to cook food that is good for a renal diet that is also tasty. And then after that, we're going bowling with the Nephrology Social Media Collective. So it's a, Thursday is a super fun day. Then on Friday, there's an, a series of acute kidney injury lectures. And then Friday night, there's a, a Jeopardy for the trainer, the trainees. There's a keynote lecture, a dinner, and then everybody goes out to the bar after that. And then Saturday, there's uh, workshops. And you can do a kidney biopsy workshop. You can do a POCUS workshop. They have uh, a women in medicine workshop. There's all kinds of different things that you sign up. You do two of them, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then Saturday night, everybody that goes to the conference goes to the organizer's house and he makes martinis and meatballs for everybody. Martinis and meatballs? Martinis, meatballs, and mentoring. Why did I not go into nephrology? I just, uh, I I need an invite to this next year. (laughs) I want to hang out. We could arrange that. Paul, it, it, it's really a fun conference. Paul, why are we just now finding out about this? Well, I think because I'm the least social person on the planet, and that all sounds <laughs> awful to me, but it sounds like something you would enjoy very much. So I, 
I mean, the, the education part sounds great. The, the having to talk to other human beings. I've never been very good at that. But Matt, go with God. It's a good time. <laughs> oh, thank you for your blessing, Paul. Hannah, you're not always on the show. So did you want to give a pick of the week? Yeah, um, I did read a great book, but I will admit, I would love to hear Paul's impression of cats. So, Paul, if you have an impression of cats, <laughs> that would be my pick of the week. Well, Wado's already heard this. Um, yeah, it, Paul, it was one of the highlights of my week. I would love to hear it again. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I can't, I don't even really have words for it. I, so I saw it in a theater where they actually hid us upstairs, away from the main theater, so we could just be there with our shame. And then I, it is, God, Hannah, I can't. Everyone needs to go see it. I think we should all give our money to these people because it is <laughs> the single most misguided cultural event I've ever seen in my entire life. It is. So sincere, and yet it's sincere about the dumbest possible thing you've ever heard. It's a bunch of human beings dressed up like kitty cats who are part of a death cult, and they sing. <laughs> they sing not good songs, and they dance, and then they're all rubbing against each other, and it's just, it is so grotesque. And then there's Ian McKellen, and then Judy Dench is there, and then she eventually breaks the fourth wall and stares right down the lens of the camera, and it is horrifying. Like, I felt my soul leave my body. It is just... <laughs> I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is it's not good, but it is an experience that I think everyone should go through at least one time, like jumping out of an airplane. All right. I think that one minute of description was my pick of the week. Yeah, mine too. I Paul, I don't I don't know that I think we just have to go on to the topic at this point. I don't think anyone's gonna top that. So Sure. Hannah, did you want to start us off with a case Absolutely. from Catchlack? Let's do it. All right. So Miss Ann Urich is a 67-year-old woman who's presenting to our primary care clinic with a history of CKD stage four with an EGFR of 18, hypertension, and diabetes. Her urine microalbumin is 1,200 milligrams per gram. Her PTH is 200. Her vitamin D is less than nine, and her hemoglobin is nine. She hasn't seen her nephrologist in a while, and she's asking us if she thinks she, she might need to start dialysis soon and what she might need to do to prepare. So is she a candidate for dialysis and kind of at what point should we be referring her? Okay. So uh, we don't have a lot of information here. We have a patient who's got CKD stage four, has a lot of albuminuria and a history of diabetes and hypertension. Without a lot of data, it it looks like this is diabetic nephropathy with that microalbuminuria. Uh, We need to know more of the history to get a better sense of that, but that's what it's looking like. Um, And that's certainly uh, the most common cause of uh, end-stage kidney disease in the United States. Something around 45% of the patients are on dialysis are due to diabetes. And we actually have enough information to kind of calculate her, what they call the Tangri renal failure risk formula. And so you take the the age of the patient, uh, the gender, the GFR, and the microalbuminuria, and you plug that in. Um, this is a, a formula that was published in JAMA a few years ago. And when you do that, she comes out to she has a uh, she has a thirty seven percent chance of being on dialysis in the next two years. Most of the time, when I talk to people and I show them this data, uh, well, patients are horrified, right? Because all of a sudden, it becomes very real when you put a percentage on it. But doctors are actually kind of they go the other way. They think a patient with the GFR of eighteen is knocking on the door of dialysis. And when you say that they only have a one in three chance of being on dialysis in the next two years, their eyes kind of pop out of their skull. They're like, well, I, I thought it was much more certain than that. And that ends up becoming uh, really useful because, uh, you know, is it, is, it, does this woman have a real chance of going on dialysis? Absolutely. In my mind, anything over 20% risk of dialysis in the next two years 
is data that I'm going to act on. I'm going to start to do dialysis education, start to talking about access, and start talking about transplant. Now, her age is 67. She's getting to be pretty old for transplant, but not too old, right? She's rubbing up against the top of that age, but she's not there yet. And at a GFR of 18, that's one of the priorities is getting her to transplant orientation and trying to get her listed for transplant. If, you know, again, with, you know, once you've talked to her about the realities that her kidneys may fail in the future and that the best option if she wanted to live longer would be a transplant. In terms of would she be a transplant, a dialysis candidate? Well, she would be, a, she's a candidate for dialysis, but it's going to take, you know, yet is this something that she wants to do? Generally, you know, someone at age 67, she's over this line, this kind of imaginary line in the sand of 65 that makes her, you know, an elderly person on dialysis. And patient, elderly patients on dialysis don't do great. Their numbers are definitely significantly worse than younger people. And that's something that you would want to talk with her about. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely a, a, a candidate for dialysis. Um, and especially because she's a, poss- a possible transplant patient. You know, uh, to me, the most compelling argument for doing dialysis is as a bridge to a definitive therapy like transplant. Where it gets stickier is the patient that's 75 or a patient who's got an active malignancy or a patient with severe heart failure. And those patients, they're not going to get a transplant. They're never going to, almost certainly aren't going to get a kidney transplant. And then now you're, on a, you're not on a bridge to transplant, you're on a bridge to nowhere. And dialysis, it, it's a more difficult question. You know, certainly uh, these fragile patients, they don't do great on dialysis. And there's a pretty high uh, mortality in that first year. And it may be a situation where you're actually shortening their life by uh, selecting dialysis, especially uh, it's probably the most compelling data looks at um, uh, patients in nursing homes. So they, there's a, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine from a, a number of years ago that looked at um, what was the functional status of patients uh, one year after starting dialysis. And the unfortunate truth, I mean, it, was, it was a bloodbath. I mean, half the, over half the patients were dead within one year and uh, only, I think, uh, it was certainly less than 20%. I think it was 12 or 14% of them were able to maintain their functional status. The rest of them were either dead or had lost functional status. And this really kind of goes against like this vision for what dialysis can offer. Like, oh, we, we, see, we, patient, we see patients that are debilitated and have uh, advanced kidney disease. And we say, oh, well, if we clear out the uremia, that patient's going to be much more functional. And that this is the dream, but the reality, especially in patients that are nursing home patients, is just the opposite, is that you actually have a patient that's much more stable and much more functional the day before they start dialysis than they ever will be again once you start them on dialysis. Two, two questions. First one's quick. What's the, what's the rough age cutoff for transplant? And then the, the second probably question that takes longer to answer is, why are these people dying? Is it arrhythmias? Is it infections? Is it just functional status? And then they start to spiral. Can you? Right. And I guess on top of that, I'm sorry to just to piggyback because I had that same question or were these patients start on dialysis because there was something bad thought to be imminent and they thought that the dialysis would be protective as opposed to the more stable patient where you think they seem to be doing okay. Let's just hold off for now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like was someone dialyzed almost protectively because something seemed bad and imminent and those patients were not doing well at their baseline. Do you know, do you, know what I'm asking? Do you understand what I'm asking? I think, I think so. So, um, 
a reasonable kind of cutoff to have in your mind is 70 for transplant. Okay. Um, we do transplant people that are older than 70. There's, this is not an absolute rule, but the barriers to getting that transplant really start to pile up after age 70. You really need to be a patient. that's really in very good condition after age 70. Now, certainly there's plenty of patients that are under 70 that have a lot of comorbidities and a lot of medical problems, and they won't be able to get a kidney transplant. But generally, uh, the scrutiny goes up at age 70. And then, you know, why do these patients do so bad on dialysis? I kind of think, you know, some, some, some of these patients that are uh, in nursing homes with a lot of comorbidities, I kind of think of them as a, as a kind of a tall Jenga tower. And everything is stable until you put them on dialysis. And it's like shaking the table and everything <laughs> falls apart, right? It's just, it is a very traumatic, it is a pretty rough treatment to add on to that. Plus, I mean, we're asking a lot of these patients, uh, we're asking them to get into a van to be transported to a dialysis center three days a week. And then we're going to hook them up to a machine and we're going to run uh, their blood flow. And a typical blood flow on dialysis is 400 cc's a minute. Most of these people have a cardiac output probably close to four liters a minute. So you're talking about 10% of their blood flow uh, cardiac output being diverted to this dialysis machine to have this blood being uh, clean, cleaned. Um, we're going to remove usually around four pounds of excess water during that dialysis treatment. And this, this, is, this can be a shock to their system. And I think that if they're fragile, uh, they can't tolerate it. In terms of what patients uh, die of when they're on dialysis, the biggest cause of death is uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, it doesn't tend to be uh, Q-wave hemis. It's a lot of sudden cardiac death. There's a belief that it may be a lot of um, arrhythmias, though there was a landmark trial published this year that looked at putting um, ICDs into dialysis patients. If we think this is the cause of death, maybe we can uh, prevent it with ICDs. And it was a negative trial, did not help. So it's complicated. Yeah. But, but I, think the, I think the answer is if you have a patient who's frail and is weak and is fragile and having a frequent hospitalizations, adding end-stage kidney disease on top of that doesn't usually make the situation better. So I think a question that's kind of a natural follow-up, it, it, we're, we're sort of talking about this. Some of the, it seemed like there are some really clear-cut recommendations for like who to, when to start dialysis, like the uh, pericarditis or uh, pleuritis from, from uremia and then, or encephalopathy, I guess. But that, that one seemed like it could be a little bit a little bit more tricky if someone just has already baseline like cognitive impairment. So can you talk a little bit about like what are the symptoms or what are the situations where people commonly get started on dialysis? Like I remember learning the AEIOU, um, but it seemed like it's, it's very subjective in some ways as to when to start. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. So there's a, I think it's called the ideal trial. And this was a, uh, randomized controlled trial about when to initiate dialysis. And it looked at, we're going to initiate dialysis when their GFR, I think was less than 12 or, and I think they were going to, they were trying to compare it to less than seven. And so this was going to be just a GFR based trial. And um, what they found is uh, they didn't, very few patients got down to the lower limit to start the late start patients. Almost all of that ended up being started for cause that they developed 
some symptom of uremia. So ultimately what the trial ended up being was we're going to start at a GFR 12 or we're going to start because someone needed dialysis because they had a symptom of uremia. That's under what ended up being the trial because they didn't get to that lower limit of GFR. Mm-hmm. And what they found is there was no advantage to starting dialysis early. And this was uh, an absolute, uh, it, it kind of really, I think it really changed the conversation and the way we perceive that the important, that I, and again, I, I emphasize this to patients all the time because every time my patients with advanced CKD come to clinic, they're like, what's my GFR? What's my creatinine? Where am I now? And I'm like, hey, that doesn't matter because I'm not going to start you on dialysis based on that creatinine, right? I'm looking to say, are you eating? Are you losing weight? Are you having nausea? Are you having itching? How's your blood pressure control? Do you have any electrolyte abnormalities? These are the things that I focus on, right? And, um, you know, I'm thinking of two patients in particular that I started on dialysis in the last month. And one of them had uh, weight loss and couldn't eat. Yeah, that was his uremic symptom. Okay, we'll start you on dialysis. And he really felt pretty sick. And he was asking to start on dialysis, which I think is that's kind of the best way to start on dialysis, not to be told by your doctor, but to say, Hey, I'm really feeling sick. And I really want this to, when they're to desperate start. enough to be begging when, for it. <laughs> right. No. And I think, right. That's the time. Yeah. I, I, I honestly think that's an, an, an <laughs> that's an important distinction. So you kind of know what uremia feels like. I feel like pruritus has to be a huge driver because it's just such a noxious symptom. Like I can't, I, I've had patients where that's really the main, the main concern that they actually Did have. Did they get much relief when they started dialysis? Uh, TBD. <laughs> Like I'm just, I think it was the one fairly yeah, yeah. recent, but yeah, yeah, they they may or may not. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully they do. But um, and then the the other one that I'm thinking about was a patient who had a very high creatinine, but had been doing fine, and then got admitted for uh, accelerated hypertension and fluid overload. And this was the second time, right? The yeah. first time you're like, okay, maybe we can adjust the diuretics. The second time we're like, okay, we're done here. This is time to start dialysis. And so I think that that accelerated hypertension, you know, hypertension that you can't reasonably control with meds, that fluid overload, that you're losing control, the diuretics are not being effective. Those are patients that you need to start on dialysis. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Can you explain the different types of dialysis to us and the different types of access? And and maybe do it the way that you're like pretend we're patients that you're explaining it to, because I think that yeah. spiel would be would be helpful. Okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, it makes sense to talk about the forms of dialysis because the accesses come out of the forms of dialysis. Okay. There's three treatments for kidney failure. There's a kidney, well, four, there's a kidney transplant. There are two flavors of dialysis, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis or blood dialysis and bloodless dialysis. And then there's conservative care. And first off, conservative care patients do remarkably well on conservative care. If you can find that right patient, they can go profound, like surprisingly long, (laughs) way after you think this patient needs to start dialysis. I had a couple of patients that I remember, and they, you know, they, they, they sought me out after another nephrologist had recommended they start dialysis. So the first day I saw them, they already had a recommendation to start dialysis. And they just told me, I don't want to do it. And I was like, okay, well, let's find alternative therapies. And we just kind of worked through all the different things that we could do uh, to keep them off of dialysis. And it, they went over a year, right? I mean, it was really, it was really remarkable. And the idea that you'll be dead in two weeks if you don't start dialysis at this X GFR, it's, we're not as good as we think we are at predicting that. Again, these are patients that 
didn't have that nausea and vomiting, right? They didn't get the fluid overload and the hypertension. Like we were able to manage those with medications and they did, and they did great for a long period of time. Um, and then transplant is absolutely the best therapy, right? They get the, they get the longest life and they get the best quality of life. So it's not only more life, but it's better life. And so you want to get as many patients transplanted as soon as possible. And then the last, the last ones are the two forms of dialysis. And so in the United States, 85 plus percent of patients get hemodialysis. It kind of is the standard, but that's not the case all around the world. So uh, Hong Kong, uh, the numbers are reversed. It's about 85% peritoneal dialysis. Mexico, over 50% of patients get peritoneal dialysis. And there's a lot of advantages to peritoneal dialysis. And, um, and you know, one of the, the biggest advantages is the day that you start dialysis, your GFR is usually not zero, right? Almost always they're not aneuric. They got a GFR of four cc's a minute, three cc's a minute. We call that residual renal function. And it is an incredibly powerful survival factor. Having that residual renal function just makes a huge difference. And when you start on hemodialysis, that residual renal function goes to zero within months. It's very unusual for people to have that long-term preserved residual renal function on hemodialysis. But on peritoneal dialysis, they can continue it for a long period of time. And you can see that the it, the survival advantage that peritoneal dialysis has on hemodialysis is almost entirely predicated on that residual renal function. And you go out two or three years and that residual, residual renal function finally goes away and they finally get to zero, peritoneal dialysis um, uh, survival benefit evaporates and kind of flips over and becomes worse than hemodialysis. So early on, there's a bit of a survival advantage for peritoneal dialysis, largely predicated on residual renal function but over time, that advantage disappears as the residual renal function goes away. But it's important to be cognizant of that, right? Because you're going to be seeing these patients in the hospital. And should you be giving them an NSAID? Probably not, right? Can you give them a diuretic? Yeah, we do that a lot. We use a lot of diuretics in perineal dialysis patients just to continue getting any kind of urine flow that we can makes a huge difference in how well they do on that modality. Um, but the big advantage of perineal dialysis is huge patient independence, right? They control their therapy. They're able to do the dialysis on their schedule rather than racing into a dialysis unit, waiting in the waiting room until they're called back, sitting in the chair, waiting for someone to put the needles in, sitting there for three and a half hours, four hours, and then having to recover and go home. They get to do this on their schedule. A lot of people are able to just do um, uh an automated dialysis, a cycler system overnight. And they'll run the cycler overnight. They'll finish the dialysis, go, and they'll drain their belly completely, have no fluid in them during the belly and be able to, during the day, and live their life normally during the day and then hook themselves up back up at night. Not everybody, right? Some people need more clearance and they'll need to do, carry a dwell in the middle of the day or even do an exchange in the middle of the day. But a lot of flexibility with that makes travel very easy and, you know, so it's it's a it's a great solution for patients that want to do that. Joel, you mentioned the residual renal function in patients who are on hemodialysis. We're seeing them in the hospital or in the clinic, and we're trying to decide: Are we going to send them for a contrast study? Is it safe to give them an NSAID? Um, it, how common is it that patients? I, I know for peritoneal dialysis patients, it's it's 
I, I more commonly remember to ask for hemodialysis patients. Some of them tell me, oh yeah, I like I might urinate like once a day, very small amount. Is that just um, I think bladder sweat is maybe a term that's thrown around. Um, but like, at what level do you just decide like, okay, they don't have enough renal function. I'm just going to go to town. If I need to, I'll give them NSAIDs. I'll give them, I'll send them for contrast. Yeah. I, I, I generally uh, say, can you fill a beer can in a day? <laughs> right. So I, I want, I want to, I'll, and that's what 400, 500 CCs. And if they can do that, I care about it. If it's less than that, I don't care about it. Okay. So I guess I'll ask, there's probably an obvious answer to this, but I'm just going to ask out loud. It, there's early survival benefit. It There is um, more patient autonomy. It sounds like there's all these benefits. And yet, at least in my personal experience, I see very, very little peritoneal dialysis. So why, I, I guess two questions, is there's geographic variation within the country in terms of how much it's utilized? And then I guess the bigger question is, is this the pattern everywhere? And why is that the case that there are these benefits to peritoneal over human dialysis, at least early on? Yeah, I think I think it's complicated, and there's a number of different re- <laughs> no, and there's a number of different yeah. reasons there, and and uh, you know some of that is uh, at the moment when you're talking to a patient and you said your kidneys have failed, and you have two options: one, I'm going to train you how to do this procedure, and you're going to have to take care of yourself in your home and do a medical procedure, and they're frankly terrified, and they don't want to do it, and two. Nephrologists have less experience with peritoneal dialysis. When you have 85% of your patients on hemodialysis and you get these kind of concentrations where that 15% is not equally distributed, you know it's going to be in hot spots areas. There'll be some doctors that have very, very little peritoneal dialysis. And you ask those nephrologists, what are they more comfortable with? Almost all of them are going to say hemodialysis. And I'm sure we give you know, signals to our patients that this is what we want them to do. I'm sure that, and, and, I'm, and when I say I'm sure, I'm pretending like I don't know the data. Like that's absolutely happening. It's definitely happening. The sure. doctors are, are at fault. But then there's infrastructure issues also. So yeah, of course. we have patients that are in the hospital, they're perineal dialysis, but they don't have to go to a rehab facility. There's six rehab facilities. Only one of them offers PD. Oh, and their nurse is on vacation. And now you can't do PD there. And it's it's a real problem. And so, you know, trying to move that number up, it's a systems issue. But uh, so there's patient issues. There's doctors' issues, um, and there's been efforts from the federal government to move patients to home. And this is one of the things that was uh, recently implemented by President Trump um, the, to increase the number of people going home. And uh, we'll we'll see if these uh, these measures make a difference. But they're going to really be um, encouraging uh, doctors financially to get their patients to go home, both stick and carrot. I think we should. I, I do want to spend a good amount of time talking about medications and what happens once the we, person's on. We missed. We didn't talk about access at all. We didn't yeah. Talk about hemodialysis. Can I? Get, can we talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yes. Okay. The perineal dialysis is a is a tube that goes in their belly. It's usually placed by a general surgeon or a nephrologist can also do it. It's not a very complex procedure, and it only takes about three weeks from being placed to being used. And actually. We have a protocol at our hospital, and it's becoming more and more common where we can use it immediately. We call it a, a urgent PD, and we can place it and start them on PD that night. Small volumes and observe. We don't send them go home. We do it in, in the unit, but uh, that allows. So we, even if you need to start dialysis right away, you can still choose peritoneal dialysis. Hemodialysis, There are uh, the key here is getting blood out of the body, run it through the dialysis machine, the artificial kidney, and return it to the body. 
And things I always emphasize to patients, your blood doesn't mix with anybody else's, right? There's no transfusions involved. We're used to seeing these uh, to IV lines, right? An IV line goes 100 cc's a minute, 100 cc's an hour, right? Maybe 150 or 200 if you really got it rolling. Uh, a dialysis access runs 400 cc's a minute, right? It is such a, it, you know, that, that, that tunneled catheter may look like just a big IV, but it really is a completely different technology in terms of the volume of blood that runs through that. It really, it's, it's huge. And, um, and so in, you can't use a little peripheral vein it has to be in a big central vein. Um, and that, you know, so the, uh, a tunneled catheter usually enters through the internal jugular, but it's, the ends of those tips, they go into the uh, they go into the right atrium. That's where you can get enough blood to to draw that much in and out. So tunneled catheters are great because we can put them in quickly and use them immediately. And that's the that's there's not anything else that has that type of solution. Big downside to them is infection, right? You've got a plastic tube that's hanging out of it, it's heading right into the central vein. We get a lot of infections with those. Keep them in long enough, you're guaranteed to get an infection. And these can be serious. We see a lot of endocarditis in our patients, unfortunately. The other alternative is to use um, uh, an AV access, usually uh, using the brachial arteries and veins in the uh, upper extremity, sometimes in the radial. To get that type of blood flow, we need to we need to go from a pretty significantly sized artery directly into a vein without breaking down to the capillaries first. We create these fistulas, connection between the artery and the vein, um, and once you've created that connection between the artery and the vein, you give it some time and that vein essentially arterializes, it thickens up and it allows it to have a, uh, and you want to see about uh, a 1.2 liters of flow going through that fistula so you can pull off 400 cc's a minute. And so again, that's a pretty significant fistula, right? If your heart only pumps five liters a minute with a good cardiac index, we're going to take 20% of that and run it through a fistula, you know, not oxygenating anything, totally useless circulation. Interesting. That's the same amount of blood flow that normally goes to the kidneys, one liter <laughs> a minute. And now we're just dedicating it to the, uh, to the fistula. Um, and uh, there's two technologies to make this fistula. One, you can use an artificial uh, bit of nylon and that's called a graft, or you can just uh, reroute native blood vessels, and that's called a, fist, uh, a fistula. And the fistula is the best. It has the least amount of maintenance. There's no foreign tissue in there that can be it get, can get infected. So they're resistant to infection, and they are resistant to failure. They work really well. They're difficult to set up. You need to have pretty healthy veins, pretty good size veins to do that. But once you have one that's working, it'll work for a long period of time. A graft, unfortunately, we get a lot of uh, obstruction, and we, they can get they can they can get uh, obstructed, and they can get infected, and uh, so it's a it's less good. So the best that you can have is a fistula. The second best is a graft, and third place is a tunneled catheter. Joel, can you talk about the physical exam? Just how how can you tell if you can graft versus fistula, and and uh, what what should we look for? Just when we're if we're seeing a patient with on dialysis, what should we look for? 
Well, the, the, the fistula, since it's native, that's the one that gets kind of a tortuous and you can see these right. aneurysms and it's all going to be soft, right? Cause it's all native vessels. Mm-hmm. It feels like it feels like net normal tissue. The graph, when you feel it, it feels hard, mm-hmm. right? Incisionally, is there any big difference that would differentiate? No. Okay. No, and not, and not location either. All right. And then the, the last thing about it is the fistula uh, takes a usually takes a sixty to ninety days to mature after the surgical creation. If it does mature, there's a pretty significant failure rate for the maturation. Uh, about sixty percent of them will not uh, mature to be able to be used. Uh, which is sorry, six zero? Did you say? I said six zero. Holy this, smokes! Yeah, no, that's right. This surgery of all the surgeries that you send your patients for, I'm not sure if there's any that has as much of a failure rate as this one. Jeez. It's pretty pretty significant. Um, and grafts take about uh, three weeks to mature. All right. All right, so kind of summarizing, it sounds like best option, transplant. If transplant is not an option and we don't want to do conservative care, uh, best option, peritoneal, which we can start either immediately or it takes two weeks. Um, two, two weeks, yeah. And then kind of within the hemodialysis options, we have a TDC we can use immediately, the tunneled cath, um, an AVG, the graft we can use, we said a couple weeks, and then a fistula a few months with a high failure rate. Bingo. All right. So I think we should get into talking about some of the medications. So we now have our patient and I guess, I don't know, Hannah, are we putting this, are we going to put our patient on peritoneal dialysis or we want to put them on hemo? We sh- so clearly now we know we should have put our patient on peritoneal dialysis, but uh, we decided to do since 80, 85% are on uh, hemodialysis. She's on hemodialysis uh, through a, an ABF. The poor woman's blind. She can't <laughs> actually do the peritoneal dialysis. Oh, that's hmm. right. There you go. She's yeah. just, and not that she couldn't. I'm sure there's some blind people that do it just fine, but she's very nervous about this and just would that's rather leave it to the professionals. And I hear this. I hear this all the time. Joel, so let's let's hear about what what medications should we think about starting her on? And, and maybe she's already been on some of these. She she had CKD four for a while. So. The kind of the dialysis uh, comorbidities that you're going to be that people deal with. One is going to be uh, the metabolic bone disease, and so unfortunately, hemodialysis just doesn't do a good job of getting rid of phosphorus. Phosphorus levels get very high if you don't address them with some other technology besides just dialysis. We can't just use uh, the filtration of dialysis to clear out the phosphorus load, and so. We tell people to go on a low phosphorus diet. We want them to be about 800 milligrams of phosphorus a day. Difficult to do, but even if you do that, you're still going to have excess phosphorus left. And then we add um, phosphorus binders. And these are just medications that bind up the phosphorus in the diet so it doesn't get absorbed by the body. And so you poop it out. And uh, the most common phosphorus binders is calcium acetate or calcium carbonate, otherwise known as Tums. And the calcium binds the phosphorus, and it's not it's not able to be absorbed. There are then uh, uh, non-calcium-based binders. There's um, sevelimir, which is uh, uh, again binds up the phosphorus, so it can't be absorbed. There's lanthium carbonate or phosronol, which is a big chewable pill, like a big Rolaids that binds up the phosphorus. And then there's um, iron citrate, I believe it is. Is uh, is less what's called orixia. It's the newest, well, the newest binder, and it uses iron to bind up the phosphorus. And with the side effect of actually raising their iron, actually, it's better for their anemia. It's a pretty cool drug, and I found it to be pretty effective at lowering the phosphorus. 
the it, it seems a little bit to me just I, I don't know how people choose calcium acetate versus civelomer. And then sometimes people are on calcitriol, vitamin D3. You know, the, how do you decide what order to put these on? Is it is it by just looking at the labs or is there some sort of science to it or evidence behind what you're choosing? Oh, that's pretty funny. You use the word evidence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this whole field of uh Calcium, uh, calcium, phosphorus, mineral bone disease is just dominated by opinions, guidelines, and retrospective analysis. Um, we just we don't have good data of what to do. There's been a number, a few randomized controlled trials at looking at calcium-based binders versus non-calcium-based binders, and if you ignore one completely unbelievable study in Italy that had a tremendous, powerful effect that is, I, I do not believe it, right? Like nobody dies if you give them Savellamir and everybody <laughs> dies if you give them calcium, right? The effect size is just unbelievable. If you ignore that, then there's no compelling evidence that non-calcium-based binders are better than um, calcium-based binders. Okay. Now you can look at second order effects. You're like, oh, but I got a high calcium. Well, probably if you have a high calcium, giving them additional calcium doesn't make a lot of sense. That's fair enough. Um, but then the next question is, well, why are we giving them the phosphorus binders? What advantage do patients get from the phosphorus binders? And that fundamental question hasn't been answered, right? There's a lot of soft stuff. Oh, their itching will be better. Oh, they can get uh, very high uh, PTH and that can cause a bone pain and they might need to get a parathyroidectomy if you don't take care of it. Um, but th those end up being relatively rare in the exceptions. And we put all these patients on phosphorus binders trying to get that phosphorus down with pretty thin evidence that there's any advantage to patients to doing it. Um, and I believe in Canada, they are now doing a randomized control trial looking at phosphorus control, kind of having a relaxed phosphorus control versus tight phosphorus control. I'm super interested in that trial. It is really uh, overdue. What what would be considered tight control or what sort of numbers are we no looking yeah. for? Vitamin so, D, PTH, phosphorus, and calcium. Current, current guidelines for phosphorus say we want a normal phosphorus. The slightly older guidelines say we want it to be less than 5.5 those are the targets. So okay. you're, you know, either normal or less than 5.5 for a dialysis patient. Uh, for PTH, the old guidelines was less than 300. The new guidelines are less than 680 for ionized, for uh, uh, intact PTH. Um, but again, everything I said about phosphorus goes doubly for PTH. We have, we have no compelling evidence that controlling PTH provides patients any benefit. The, there was a well-done randomized controlled drug uh, trial of a drug called Sinicalcet, which is a calcium emetic. It's a very effective drug for lowering the PTH. They were looking at improvements in cardiovascular disease. So it was powered for mortality, and they found no difference in mortality. And you know, they were randomizing patients to calcium emetic or not. But there was at least a 20% spread in the PTH between the patients on the drug and the patients on placebo. And there was no benefit to patients. Big drop in their PTHs, no benefit. Um, no difference in fractures, no difference in bone pain, right? All the other things, all these other effects that you would want to see, they couldn't find with this 
with this protocol. And so I am, I am not a stickler for getting patients PTH right on the bun, uh, right on the money. I think it's a lot of effort with, and a lot of pills and a lot of cost and a lot of side effects without known benefit for patients. It makes me very concerned. And this calciphylaxis, I've only seen, it, it seems to be a rare condition, right? That's, isn't that one of the theoretical concerns about, about this? Um, it is not clear how much the calciphylaxis is related to their serum calcium and their serum phosphorus. Okay. It is a more complex thing. It is a devastating complication. I've seen too much of it in my career. Yeah. Um, but I would say the biggest risk factor for that is uh, obesity and warfarin. Okay. Way more than poorly controlled. I see a lot of uncontrolled phosphorus all the time. And uh, thank God, most of those patients never get calciphylaxis. Okay. And any specific, any different vitamin D targets, like just, is it just the normal range to get the vitamin D into the normal range, kind of like what most other people are doing? So remember that to activate vitamin D requires healthy kidneys and none of our patients have healthy kidneys, none of the patients on dialysis. Yeah. And so, uh, and there's been some trials looking at correcting vitamin D in dialysis patients, and it seems to be a totally meaningless thing to do. Okay. Right. Doesn't doesn't affect anything to look at nutritional 25-OH vitamin D. We use active vitamin D like uh, calcitriol and some semi-synthetic versions like paracalcitol and um, doxorcalciferol. And these are used to lower the PTH. And the semi-synthetic ones promise that they'll get less hyperphosphatemia and less hypercalcemia compared to the natural calcitriol, it's unclear whether they really do that. So for this, our patient, Ann Yurick, uh, who I'm, I think is returning from a previous episode, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we, is- We met her cousins, Paula Yurick and Olga Yurick. Yeah. I'm sorry I asked. Uh, <laughs> she, so her vitamin D was less than nine. So she's getting some calcitriol, I imagine. Well, she's, and, and, and the, the, the interesting thing there is um, anybody who's got significant proteinuria is going to have a very low vitamin D. Right, because okay. one of the one of the proteins that they're losing in their urine is their calcium, their vitamin T binding protein. I don't know why I keep calling it calcium. <laughs> their vitamin D binding protein is lost in their urine. So anybody who's got nephrotic range proteinuria, check a vitamin D, it'll be unmeasurable. Okay, or close to it. All right, so we're moving through. So I think so for mineral bone disease, it seems like get the numbers in a reasonable range, but don't stress too much about it because we don't know if it really helps the patient. And one of the things I, one of the things I would emphasize is that all of that is going to be taken care of by protocol at the dialysis unit. Yeah. Right. This is not something that you need to touch. You just need to be kind of aware of the medications that they're on. Most of the patients that are on hemodialysis will be getting IV vitamin D with dialysis. They won't be on a vitamin D pill. Um, they will be taking phosphorus binders and they may be on a calcium emetic, which is Sinicalcin. Okay. You reminded me, I once asked a nephrology friend how he managed this, the same question that Matt asked, and he answered, by using a formula you would not understand. And I was like, that's fair and probably accurate, so I will, <laughs> I will not let you do that. And that is the favorite answer of all nephrologists. <laughs> okay. And so- How did you meet your wife? It was a formula you wouldn't <laughs> understand. <laughs> so it sounds like- it, you know, there's there are certain things that are, are very comfortably managed by nephrologists that probably the primary care doctor, I'm not going to say won't have to worry about, but will not be as involved in. And, I, you know, the phosphorus level, 
and bone mineral bone mineral metabolism being one of them. But what what other things are sort of really squarely in the domain of nephrology that we should maybe stay out of the way for, or at least make sure that we're actively collaborating with uh, when we're managing an end stage renal disease patient? Okay, so in the dialysis unit, they're going to be taking care of volume status. They're going to be taking care of uh, iron status and hemoglobin, and they'll be taking care of calcium, phosphorus, and PTH. All that is going to be regularly checked and regularly monitored. Volume status is one thing, but blood pressure is another. The blood pressure goal of the dialysis unit is not to let the patient get hypotensive. And so they're, they, they are not going to be too upset about the patient coming in at 160 and leaving at 140. And that's probably not ideal for those patients, but it's making the dialysis unit's life easier because they're not worried about the patient bottoming out. And so I think, uh, and, and then there's the, the additional problem is when you look at blood pressure, the pre-dialysis blood pressure is not a good predictor of mortality like the off-dialysis day blood pressure is. That's probably the best way to measure the blood pressure, doing home readings, just like we always talk about with regular outpatient blood pressures. Home readings are best. And so that's an opportunity where the primary care doctor gets information that the nephrologist doesn't have. But I don't get to, I don't see my patients on non-dialysis days. You see them by definition only on non-dialysis days. Ideally. Right. And so the blood pressures that you get there, I think, are super valuable. If that patient is coming into your office with blood pressures 180, that's a time to work with the nephrologist to try to get that blood pressure down. Yeah, it seems like the I've even seen patients who are taking their blood pressure medicines only on non-dialysis days, or I've seen patients uh who don't have a high blood pressure problem anymore. And now they're taking, uh, is it midadrine or mitadrine, Paul? I'm, I'm midadrine. Not, midadrine. They're You're taking, asking me. They're, they're taking midadrine just to keep their blood pressure up. What do you think about all that? Yeah. So uh, there's, um, there's a, a frightening amount of literature looking at uh, patient outcomes that are on midadrine and these patients do horrible. And there's a debate whether, oh, is it the drug that's causing these patients to do horrible? And I don't think it's the drug. I think patients that are hypotensive that need a drug to support their blood pressure during dialysis are patients whose heart is doing poorly yeah. and they're and they're just gonna have a bad outcome. And um and so that's that's definitely a warning sign. That's a patient you should pay attention to. That's a sick person and you don't want to make any mistakes on that patient because they're gonna have trouble. Okay. Yeah, and you can then, pay attention to those people on the drain. And in your, in your practice, do you, uh, so it sounds like we should really be letting the nephrologist dictate the blood pressure medications during, during dialysis, like once the patient's on dialysis, right? Definitely collaborate them if we're going to be making a lot of changes. But I would love if you, if, you, if they come to your office and their blood pressure is super high or super low, like I would love to hear from you. Cause again, that's a, that's a blood pressure reading that I don't get commonly. And it's an important one. Okay. It's an important number. And, and it is potential that sometimes patients are going to just take blood pressure meds on non-dialysis days if they're hypotensive. Or don't take the their unit. blood pressure till they get home from dialysis. Yeah, we, okay. we work, again, we don't want their blood pressure to drop during dialysis. And so we work around that problem, but that doesn't mean we can leave them hypertensive the yeah. rest of the time. So there was a ton of questions about ACEs, ARBs, even spironolactone. Are these medications like a big no-no once patients are on dialysis or can we can we still use these medications? Okay. So, uh, ACEs are effective in dialysis patients. Spironolactone is effective in dialysis patients. Um, and they still cause hyperkalemia, even in patients that are aneuric, which is weird, right? Cause in the end, these patients use their colon for a lot of potassium clearance <laughs> and that, and potassium excretion in the colon is dependent on aldosterone. 
And so uh, you will see more hyperkalemia when you use these drugs. But most patients on dialysis, not all, but most of them don't have a problem with potassium, even with spironolactone, they get away with it just fine. And it's a good, and these are good medications, especially the ACE inhibitors, still good for the heart. And so we use them all the time. They're good blood pressure medications, good for the heart, good for patients. Okay. Um, but the thing to think about with hypertension in dialysis patients is it's almost always volume. These patients are highly volume dependent. They all live with a, you know, in, in volume overload. And so when you get a patient who's hypertensive, you know, this is something that's best controlled by adjusting their dry weight in the dialysis unit. And if they have residual renal function, are you using diuretics and, and what sort of doses might we, might we use? I have not had a lot of luck using dose, using diuretics, even with residual renal function control blood pressure. Other people's experience may vary. Um, we do it a lot in peritoneal dialysis. Um, but to me, if you need to get their volume down, you need to go to the dialysis unit and do it there. I think part of uh, why people had so many questions about ACEs and ARBs is because when people are tra- or have CKD4, just before they get on dialysis, a lot of times those meds and or the diuretics are held. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I, so I think everybody does this. So they're trying to they're trying to get the last milliliter per minute of GFR of the patient to keep them off dialysis as long as possible. And patients are really supportive of that. And so you hold off on their angiotensin receptor blockers or their ACE inhibitors. I don't think we know the right answer if that's correct, but a lot of people do it. Um, there is a trial undergoing right now, I think it's called Stop ACE, that's looking at that very question, should we stop them or keep it going? But that said, a lot of people stop these drugs in CKD stage four. And this is one of the things that's routinely resumed once they get on dialysis, because they're good for the heart. And then for that peritoneal dialysis patient, is there a diuretic of choice that you recommend? Or yeah, it's a, it, The loop diuretics are the only thing that you can use at that point. They're GFR so low. So choose your loop, Bumex, furosemide, torsemide, take your pick. And this might be too... Uh... This might be too much in your wheel, in the nephrologist's realm, not ours, but minoxidil, any other drugs we should think about when we're, that, that yeah, we might so, not normally reach for? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm not a fan of minoxidil. I mean, uh, patients with uremia are already at risk of uh, pericarditis, and minoxidil causes that pericardial uh, inflammation. Same with hydralazine. I just don't like drugs that it's kind of stack side effects on something that patients are already prone to. I try to avoid it at all costs. But Sometimes you can't control it otherwise. Okay. Paul, do you want to, what was, what else did we have? Sure. And I, and if you. Paul, did, that, did, that, did we get, did we cover the things that you wanted to cover about what's I, done? I, that? Thank you for asking. I, the, I think the only thing I would ask, and I know this could be a whole episode unto itself, is just sort of your general approach to sort of iron and anemia management. Because I think that we, we said that it's sort of within your purview, but I don't think we sort of talked about sort of goal hemoglobin. Is there anything else that we should be sort of, we can be helpful for on the primary care side? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess what I would say is, uh, first of all, for your CKD patients that are not yet on dialysis, when you see that anemia, uh, first thing you got to think about is iron deficiency, right? Because as they approach, as their renal function deteriorates, their hepcidin levels go up and they just don't absorb oral iron at all. And so we see a lot of iron deficiency in CKD long before dialysis. And then that's just made worse once they're on dialysis. They start losing a little bit of blood in uh in the dialysis machine or in the filters, they lose, uh, they have a um, muc- loss of mucosal blood in their GI tract. They have a little bit of uremic bleeding uh, and their hepcidin levels are even higher. 
And so there's a lot of iron deficiency and we use IV iron um, pretty aggressively in the dialysis units, run their ferritins up into the high, close to 1,800. Oftentimes we'll see uh, before we'll stop with that uh, with that iron because they get a good re- good response. There was a trial last year called the Pivotal Trial that looked at uh, iron versus more iron, and more iron was more better. <laughs> Stuart, I, I, you know, oh, he's not he's here, but I'm I'm sure he just heard like bells chiming or something like that. He's just <laughs> So kind of going back to the the question of GI bleeding, mucosal GI bleeding in these patients, screening as kind of the primary care consultant for screening for these patients, what kind of screening do you think we should have these patients do? Right. So this was, uh, you know, when they did the um, things we do for no reason, I think it was the name of the, uh, yeah, was put great. through by ABIM did a big, like low value behaviors in every specialty. And when nephrology did it, one of them was low value for cancer screening and dialysis patients. That the dialysis is is a short road, unfortunately. Uh, Not for everybody, but for most of the patients that go on dialysis. And the idea that doing mammograms or looking for colon cancer would result in discovering a disease and allowing early treatment that would prolong survival is is just, it's a fantasy. It doesn't happen. And what you have is you have patients that have marginal nutrition that are being told, hey, don't eat for 24 hours. We're going to do a colonoscopy. We're going to take this prep. And you know they're fragile already, and we're going to disrupt all their fluids going across their colon. I mean, it, it's, it's a big ask for patients, and the likelihood that you're going to improve anything is nearly nil. Yeah, nearly nil. Uh, so, so the recommendation is no colon, no screening colonoscopies, no mammograms, um, uh, no CT scans of chest, low dose CT scans of chest. Like none of that stuff should be done in your dialysis patients, unless you have a particularly young dialysis patient that fits, that still fits the criteria that they should, they would benefit from these things. But in most patients don't stop doing all that screening stuff. No PSAs. Joel, we were we were talking about this, and I think this also kind of ties in with Paul's question. The one of the articles, I can't remember which one, or I shout out to the author. They made the point that as the patient goes on to dialysis, in many cases, the nephrologist almost becomes the primary care doctor. But nephrologists, while they're good at the things we just talked about, hypertension, anemia managing the mineral bone disease, they're not as great at the normal primary care stuff. So you're telling us not to do cancer screening, but things like making sure they've had their vaccinations and if they're if they have diabetes doing their their foot care and things like that. I think we should think of ourselves almost as now we're the consultant for primary care to the nephrologist. And I th- I thought that was a great way to to yep. think about that's, this. That that's a great way that's a great way to think about it. Though I would say that uh Influenza vaccine is another thing that's taken care of by the dialysis units. Okay. They yeah. vaccinate, they are, and they're pretty aggressive about getting everybody vaccinated. They do a good job with that. They give out t-shirts if you get, if you get your shot, like, yeah. you, st- you know, do a nice job with it. And I know you guys so are guess, making sure everyone's hep B immune as well. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and we're big on the hep B immunity. Every this, single time. I mean, you know, this, it's, it's before my time, but you read these stories about these hep B outbreaks that just ripped through dialysis units. And it was just this horrible epidemic on late eighties, early nineties. And the CDC stepped in and said, we will not allow this to happen. And it doesn't happen. It really, they've absolutely stopped. It's pretty impressive. 
so this is maybe a kissing cousin to the screening stuff, but where where are we with statins and hemodialysis now? Are they helpful? Are they not helpful? The guidelines seem a little bit discordant. Um, so the, the guidelines for the dialysis guidelines are called KDGO. And uh, so we had a, a number of studies that looked at st- initiating statins in dialysis patients. It seems like it should be a win. We have very high cardiovascular disease burden and repeatedly it did not help. There was one study uh, that looked at uh, simvastatin and azetamide, and it was positive, but included both dialysis and CKD, which seems like cheating. So the <laughs> guidelines currently are, if you are on a statin, when you start dialysis, you continue on the statin. If you are not on the statin and you get on dialysis, you do not initiate the statin. That's the guideline now. Okay. Wow. And more meds to kind of avoid you've got a list. What kind of medication should we be avoiding to avoid mucking things up? Okay. The first one is the Fleet's enema. So Fleet's is just sodium phosphate and the phosphate concentration, if I did my math right, is like 15,000 milligrams per (laughs) deciliter. Like it's absolutely (laughs) insane. And every year, some dialysis patient comes into an ER with abdominal pain and gets given a Fleet's enema and dies, right? They get hypocalcemia and their heart stops. And you're like, and it's just, it's tragic, right? And it says right on the damn box of the Fleet's Enema, you know, don't use if you have kidney problems. So don't use Fleet's Enemas, right? You can use a soap sud enema, you can use a tap water enema, uh, you can use uh, 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 polyethylene glycol, you cannot use uh, sodium phosphate. Yeah. And can I argue if you have a geriatric patient with CKD three or four, it just seems like there is like, why would you even run the risk? Like just give them a tap water enema. It works just fine. Like I get so angry when I see fleet enemas ordered uh, because most of my patients just should not be getting them. Just good old fashioned colase. Just really load them up with. <laughs> as, much place, as much oh, as you want. Name. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the problem is the brand name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Placebos for everybody. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the other other drugs that uh, are problems. So uh, gabapentin, uh, it definitely accumulates and we see altered mental status all the time from that drug. Uh, so kind of traditional maximum doses, 300 milligrams a day. And, you know, you see patients rolling in with 900 milligrams, you know, multiple grams a day. Try to avoid that. Um, uh, the opioids, we had this great, there was a great Curbsiders episode last year from Neff Madness about pain control and CKD. I, I learned so much from that that episode. That's absolutely great. Listen to that again. Um, but the long and short of that is avoid the natural opioids and use the semi-synthetics. Um, so uh, hydrocodone was good and uh, hydromorphone was good no morphine, no codeine. Uh, And then um, baclofen causes all kinds of unusual uh, central nervous system abnormalities uh, in dialysis patients can imitate a stroke. Uh, Big problem with that drug, avoid completely. I've never seen as, I mean, it's, I've seen patients get toxic on baclofen after a single dose. It's a wild how toxic it can be yeah since what, since uh matt matt sparks had those pins that he was yep. kind of tweeting out pictures of them and i've i've seen about three or so cases they weren't i don't know that they were on dialysis but they were patients with advanced ckd that were in rough shape mentally because of baclofen 
Yeah, I had a, I had a patient who was having um, myoclonic, some kind of uh, spasms, kind of muscle spasms, got put on baclofen, and his symptom of baclofen toxicity was myoclonic jerks, which is a normal one. And so the doctor who prescribed it said, "Oh, we just need to increase the dose, sure. right? Because oh, we're more." <laughs> you're you're more. <laughs> it was not a good and. I just, you know, I saw the patient, he gave me the complaint. I said, looked at his med list. I was like, here's your problem. Stop this. And I saw him a, a week later. He was so happy. It was all, you know, stop the drug. He got better. He's delighted. Another drug that's uh, questionable is the NSAIDs, right? So when they have CKD, we tell people never to use them. They cause a lot of high blood pressure. They cause fluid retention. They cause a drop in the GFR. And most of those issues go away as problems once they're on dialysis but I just, I caution just because um, uh, these patients are already prone to GI bleeds. And so I always want to make sure patients don't have any history of peptic ulcer disease or gastritis before I get, throw an NSAID on. And I always worry about cardiovascular disease also, because that's a, there's a real signal with those drugs also. Joel, I don't know if this is an easy answer, but the, the renal diet that gets ordered for inpatients, is there any evidence that that's prolonging life or making things easier or do you have any sort of handout that you can recommend that we our, our listeners can give to their patients on dialysis or who are going to be starting it in the near future? So um, to answer your question, I am not aware of any hospital diet that has resulted in any improved outcomes. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, I am not, I'm not going to follow the sword for the renal diet until you show me that the cardiac diet does anything for patients. I have some <laughs> studies that show that uh, fluid and salt restriction do not, but I, not, I don't yeah. have any uh, that are, that are backing it up. No. Yeah, no. So, um, uh, so the renal diet is going to be low in potassium, low in phosphorus, there's usually two different versions, one for pre-dialysis, which is low in protein, and one that's on dialysis that is rich in protein. We usually, patients lose significant amounts of protein during dialysis. It's a kind of a catabolic state, so you, they want, you want your dialysis patients to be on a high-protein diet um, and try to minimize the amount of phosphorus in the diet. I don't know if it helps anything. Patients complain about it regularly. I am a, I'm a softie. I you're just like Always. regular diets for everyone. Regular diet, whatever you want. Yeah, that's right. Because that's what I would want if I was on dialysis. I would be like, give me my food. I want a hamburger. Okay. Yeah. Um, so earlier you mentioned kind of warfarin toxicity. Can you just explain what that's about? Should we be stopping warfarin on these patients? Should we be worrying about that? Okay. So the primary indication that we run into this is with uh, atrial fib. And um, we don't have good data that anticoagulating these patients prevents, uh, has a net benefit for these patients. We know that dialysis patients are at higher risk of bleeding, um, but they're also at a pretty significant risk of stroke. And none of the landmark studies that were done on atrial fib included dialysis patients. They were all systematically excluded. And there's been a number of retrospective studies that have looked at this, and some have said you need to anticoagulate, and others have said you can't, you shouldn't anticoagulate. And so I don't, I don't know what to do. And there's actually, there's not even a study on the horizon that's going to answer this question. Really, we need a placebo-controlled trial of anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation. The next question is, if you're going to choose to anticoagulate, should you use a DOAC or should you use uh, warfarin? And um, the big concern with warfarin is it can cause this calciphylaxis, which is oftentimes a lethal complication. It's a skin lesion. It's ischemic lesions in the skin. It's absolutely horrible. It's profoundly disfiguring. It's very painful. Um, 
it's it's you know one of the horrible complications of end stage renal disease, and it's clear uh, right down to a they've worked out the entire mechanism that warfarin is a major promoter of this condition. Uh, is it a protein the, CNS related thing? It's it is it is one of the vitamin K dependent proteins. Okay. Is uh, it, it's an anti it, it prevents calcification. And you, when you suppress it, you get this increased calcification. Um, the problem with the DOACs is they're just not well studied in dialysis patients. Uh, Eliquis is licensed for use in uh, dialysis patients, but its evidence base is pretty thin. It seems to work. Uh, there's a pretty good debate about which dose to use and whether you're getting adequate uh, anticoagulation with it. And I think uh, the jury's bit is it's a, it's a bit uncertain. And right. so I don't have a great answer for you for this, unfortunately. Yeah. We talked to, um, Dr. Strife, Michael Strife from Hopkins. He's a hematologist and we, it was, it was about DVT. He uses a Pixaban. He said he uses the five milligram dose in patients on dialysis and that he's even checked 10 a levels on patients. And it wasn't, he, he hadn't had problems, but this is a small sample size. And was that once or twice a day, five, twice a day? I believe it was once. twice a day. Yeah. So he went full to full strength, full strength. I believe so. Yeah. But, you know, I, it seems like I'm seeing patients on both the 2.5 twice a day mm -hmm. or five twice a day. And it's really hard, you know, for, when you're just seeing cases that way, it's hard to know who's bleeding because they're on one dose or the other and who's clotting because they're on one dose or the other. So it, it, like you said, it needs to be studied. It needs to be studied in a systematic way. That's right. Anna, does that answer your question? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you how we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, there's, been, there's, there's been a little bit of that tonight. Uh, I yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> so that, this is basically what rounds with me is like, except for three hours of me being like, I don't know. I don't have any explanation. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking, <laughs> so speaking of not knowing things, um, I'm going to be an intern in six months, which terrifies me. Um, so what are kind of the common mistakes that people inpatient kind of hospitalist teams inpatient make while managing patients on dialysis? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, the one that will get you yelled at is check <laughs> is checking a post dialysis electrolyte panel and then replacing the potassium, which is low, right? <laughs> Everybody coming out of dialysis is going to have a low potassium. You know why dialysis works, right? That's why. Okay. <laughs> And, and so don't check the labs. We don't need, you don't need to verify that dialysis works. It does. And if you do, you will find that the potassium is low and then you will, there's that, there's that, uh, reflex that every intern develops. I see a low potassium. I give them 40 milliequivalents of potassium. Don't do that. You will get in trouble. Uh, the next is, uh, is, um, pick lines. Um, every patient, that is going to be going to rehab or out and be leaving the hospital that needs to continue their IV therapy. They want to put a pick line in. These are not good for hemodialysis patients. And that is oftentimes extrapolated to patients with advanced CKD. I'm not sure if it's right or wrong. Well, the data shows that it's right. You should not do it in patients with advanced CKD. And uh, so these pick lines definitely decrease the likelihood that they will be able to get a functioning fistula in the future. So avoid pick lines in these patients. Joel, one or yeah, go oh, on. I was going to say one other question that you're, you're talking about the checking labs after dialysis on a dialysis day, which, when do you prefer to get the labs? Cause like they, they either have to get stuck 
before they're on the machine or then they or they can get stuck as soon as they're getting put on the machine but then it's like how do you know how, how to do how to write the dialysis orders right no it, um The answer is just stick them when they're on dialysis. Just take the blood sample when they're on dialysis and avoid the stick altogether. Yeah. So you get it right when they get put on the machine? Yeah. That these patients spend way too much time on the hospital. We don't change the dialysis prescription that often. You know, clearly in an unstable patient, that's all bets are off. And we may be changing it in that situation. But most of these patients are going to get a pretty standard dialysis bath. And the decision is, you know, you're going to use a 2K bath or a 3K bath. And you can usually look at the last, the last blood draw that you've done. I try to avoid daily labs on these patients, try to minimize blood draws, just do it when they're on the machine. Okay. All right. Uh, let's do take home points. Okay. Uh, take home, take home points from this episode is, uh, use the Tangri risk formula. Your patient is not as close to dialysis as you think. Your patients will appreciate you being able to give them the longer runway. And I think that's a, a real useful and it's kind of an actionable piece of information that you can use uh, to help you discuss patients and kind of give them appropriate expectations of what's coming up in the future. Uh, next is there's a lot of different choices when it comes to dialysis. You want to get the patient a transplant if they can get to a tra- get a transplant. If they're going to need dialysis and this is something they want, peritoneal dialysis is a great option. You kind of got to swim a little bit against the current. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be pushing patients towards hemodialysis, but don't be one of those people that's pushing them in that direction. Be a cheerleader for peritoneal dialysis. Be a cheerleader for your patient to be more independent, to be able to have a greater control over their, over their healthcare. And uh, patients will appreciate that. Um, and at the same time, you can't do peritoneal dialysis forever. Peritoneal membranes wear out, and eventually hemodialysis becomes a better option, and patients need to be able to adjust towards that. Uh, when they're on uh, hemodialysis, uh, the iron and the anemia and the PTH and the phosphorus and the volume status are going to be taken care of in the dialysis unit. If you have questions about that, you can talk to them, talk to the nephrologist, but try not to be working at cross-purpose to them. And then importantly, uh, just about any drug that is neuroactive is going to be more toxic in dialysis patients. So be real careful about your gabapentin, your narcotics, your um, and uh, avoid uh, fleet enemas. Be careful with the NSAIDs, avoid GI bleeds. Um, I'm not sure what, what other things do you think I should just touch on as take home points? I think that's a pretty good, I think that's a pretty good summary there. So we should, uh, we should tell people that Neff Madness will be coming up, uh, top yeah. secret, top secret, but there will be more episodes, right, Joel? Yeah, it's, 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 it, it, this is gonna be a great year for Neff Madness. We got a lot of good stuff coming up. I right. never felt more cool than when I got the Neff Madness topic list while it was still embargoed. <laughs> <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Uh, Yummy. Oh, that was nice. I, I thought we were going to make it past it. Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on, I guess it's now Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Hannah R. Abrams, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, oh, and I should thank Stuart for the theme music. Thanks to Claire at Notterly for our audio editing. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Hannah Rebecca Abrams. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>